0: I would like you to open your Bibles again to Romans 12. Let me read the passage that we've been looking at the last few weeks. We have um, a few more sermons on this passage as we're looking at various spiritual gifts. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Heaven gives that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, If you have not been around or missed some Sundays, we're, we're looking at this list of spiritual gifts, gifts of grace, and what we've learned is that all of these gifts are given to us by grace, meaning that we don't deserve it. It's not I'm, not, I'm not a teacher because I want to be a teacher, but because God gives me a gift of teaching. I'm not a merciful person because I'm naturally merciful, but God supernaturally gifts me to extend compassion to others. We don't deserve it. God distributes these gifts freely, and so nobody can boast that I have this particular gift. All these gifts are meant for the good of the body, your community, specifically your local congregation. We are to use these gifts for the sake of others, for their benefit. Now, all these things, uh, they're gifts to particular people. So, for example, one of you may say, I have a gift of generosity. I give freely. God blesses me through that. God blesses others through me. And yet, everybody is supposed to be generous and give. So all these things are responsibilities for all Christians, and yet gifts for some. So as you listen to sermons, as as you're trying to figure out what your gift or gifts are, you need to think of it in terms of all these are things I'm supposed to be doing, but one or two of those things I'll be particularly gifted in and I'll encourage others in doing. I can stimulate and motivate other people in the church to do that well. I could be that catalyst for others. So that's how we are approaching this topic. Well, today we're looking at another speaking gift like prophecy and teaching. It is the gift of exhortation. Exhortation seems to be a funny word. We don't use it very much today. It seems like it's something that should be a reality show on TLC, like exhorters buried alive or something like that, or my big fat exhorter wedding, something like that. You know, this joke didn't work in the first service either, so don't. Don't, I should stop using it, probably. Um, what does it mean? That's what we're going to try to figure out. We're going to ask five questions today and hopefully answer them. We're going to try to figure out, number one, what is exhortation? Number two, why should we do it? Why should we exhort each other? Number three, how should we do it? Number four, why don't we do it? Why many of us don't do that? And five, finally, how we Can we do it well? So, what is it? Why should we do it? How should we do it? Why don't we do it? And how can we do it well? So, those are my five questions, and there's a logical flow to them, hopefully. Okay, what is exhortation? Well, if you look at the word itself, it's a word that literally means to be called to another side to help. To be called, to come alongside somebody to help them. It's it's a word that contains that that part of it means alongside. Part of it means to come side by side with somebody and, and help them. So for example, if a teacher, somebody with a gift of teaching, explains the truth, explains what the Bible means, an exhorter comes alongside and helps you apply it. Exhorter doesn't explain what the Bible means. Exhorter helps you do it, helps you Practice the truth. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, The teacher transmits knowledge. The exhorter stimulates. See, exhortation is, is motivating someone to practice the truth. It's about engaging the will. You see, if, if teaching is about engaging the mind, exhortation is about engaging the will. Now, Now do what you know you're supposed to be doing. You've been taught. Perhaps you had a word of prophecy into your life. Now, exhorter comes alongside and says, now you need to do that. Practice it. Put it into practice. John MacArthur explains this gift in this way. He says, The gift of exhortation encompasses the ideas of advising, pleading, encouraging, warning, strengthening, counseling, and comforting. At one time... The gift may be used to persuade a believer to turn from a sin or bad habit and at a later time to encourage that same person to maintain his corrected behavior. Now notice there are two sides to it, to exhortation. And we need to get that full picture of what it is. The two sides are sometimes you will confront somebody so there's a negative side to it. You will look at someone's life and you say, this isn't right. And you will attack that attitude, attack that behavior, and you will help them correct it. At other times, you would come alongside somebody and you would encourage them to keep doing what they're already doing. Both are part of exhortation. It's like an Oreo cookie. You get hard shell and soft filling. You need both to be an exhorter. There are times when you will confront and challenge and push people. And there are other times when you will come alongside and encourage and comfort and console and counsel them to do what they're already doing. So negative and positive are both combined in this gift. Now I think of, a, of this analogy to help me understand what exhorting looks like. When I was learning to drive, um, I came from Ukraine, married Jillian without a license, and not marriage license, but no the driver's license was missing. And so I was relying on her family uh, to teach me how to drive. So so there were a lot of in-laws in the passenger seat over a period of some months. My mother-in-law, sister-in-law, anybody who was available was was helping me learn how to drive. It was a bit awkward, sure, but uh, they were very helpful, and, and I did learn eventually. Now, when somebody takes that seat alongside the person who's learning how to drive, you will notice that there'll be a lot of times, as it was with me, when it's just a lot of encouragement. You know, keep going. You're doing great. You know, way to stop at the stop sign. Way to go. Keep keep going forward, you know. And there'll be other times where we will be like this, right? We're all, we're gonna die. What are you doing? It'd be like, not reverse, not reverse, forward, go forward, you know. Stuff like that. Or turn, turn. I remember driving with my mother in law. I took that turn really, really sharp. And it really scared her. And so it was a lot of, turn, turn, now, now, you know. So there's comforting and kind of encouraging part of it, but there's also a corrective part. You have to change now. This is urgent. You can't keep doing what you're doing. That's exhortation. It's coming alongside. You're taking that, that passenger seat and you're helping somebody learn. You're helping somebody change. And a lot of times, you're just there to encourage and comfort. And sometimes... You're there to correct them, to confront them, to challenge them. So, let's talk about why we all should be doing that for each other. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Now listen, listen to this. This is a command from God for us to fulfill. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this is what God tells us to do every day, to exhort one another. Why? Well, because there's a problem, and the problem is that we're all battling sin every day. Sin within and sin without. We're all battling our evil, unbelieving hearts that are taking us away from God. They're tearing us away from the living God. Sin that deceives us. Sin that hardens our heart. And so if you left it unchecked, you just let it go, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. You keep drifting. You keep getting farther and farther away from God. You see, our fundamental problem is sin, always. And sin separates us from God. And what we need is we need somebody to come and exhort us. The solution that God has for that problem in this particular context is that other Christians should come alongside and exhort us to change, so there's evil in our hearts, repent, replace it with the love of God. If we are simply being crushed by sin without, so for example, sinful effects of of the fall on creation like sickness or poverty, If you're just crushed by that, you're overwhelmed by that, yes, you need an exhorter to come and encourage you and to console you and to comfort you. And if that doesn't happen, it is likely that our hearts will get hardened, that we will get deceived, that we will start believing things that aren't true and we'll drift away and fall away from the living God. So the problem is sin. The solution is exhorting one another every day. There is an urgency to this. Every day, as long as this is called today, which means don't put it off, do it now. Encourage somebody, correct somebody, because this battle is fierce. If we don't exhort each other, what we're doing is we're not taking sin seriously. We're basically saying, oh, sin, not a big deal. It's a benign thing, it can do no damage. You can, you, can, you can handle it on your own. You don't need any help. If we don't exhort each other, as Scripture commands us, we're simply not taking seriously the damage that sin can do. Sin is a killer. It's a killer. It's a ravenous wolf. You kill the wolf or you die. That's our battle with sin. And we need each other to help us battle that enemy. We don't take sin seriously if we just think, oh, they can handle it. They don't need me. I'm not going to help. Secondly, we're not taking grace seriously if we don't exhort. If I refuse to get involved in somebody's life, what I'm really saying, what I functionally believe, is that I don't think grace is powerful enough to change that person I don't think that grace demands a different life from me. Sure, grace is great to get into heaven, but for here and now, for this earth, grace is irrelevant. If I'm exhorting somebody, what I'm saying is, no, 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 your life must be different because the same grace that saves you is the same grace that changes you, it sanctifies you, makes you holy, and it's powerful. And I, I want to see it work in your life because it works in my life. So if you're not exhorting, what you're really saying is holiness doesn't matter. Grace is not powerful enough. It doesn't demand anything from us. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've quoted him, I think, a couple of times in these sermons. Bonhoeffer says, if the church refuses to face the stern reality of sin, it will gain no credence when it talks of forgiveness. Such a church sins against its sacred trust, and walks unworthily of the gospel. It is an unholy church, squandering the precious treasure of the Lord's forgiveness. Nor is it enough simply to deplore in general terms that the sinfulness of man infects even his good works. It is necessary to point out concrete sins and to punish and condemn them. But the purpose of such discipline is not to establish a community of the perfect, but a community consisting of men who really live under the forgiving mercy of God. Discipline in a congregation is a servant of the precious grace of God. You see, Bonhoeffer is connecting this idea of grace, that we are forgiven through the gospel, with church discipline. Church discipline is when one member of the church comes to another and says, Stop sinning. And if they don't stop, they bring another member and say, you really need to stop sinning. This is dangerous. And finally, if there's no response, the elders might get involved. And maybe even that person will get expelled from the congregation. It's not a pleasant process. But it is necessary if we take grace seriously. Because grace demands change. Because grace is powerful. Now, why don't a lot of churches practice that? Because it's hard. It's hard. And it's messy. And there's many mistakes that are made. But if we don't try exhorting each other, and part of it is church discipline, we are not taking grace seriously. Well, and lastly on this point, not only do we not take sin seriously and grace seriously, if we're not exhorting one another, we're also not taking each other seriously. We reveal that we don't really care about each other. If I do not exhort you, what I'm saying is that I don't care if sin is killing you. I'm not going to intervene. I'm not going to help you. I just don't care. If you don't exhort others, either through comfort or through confrontation, what you're saying, even though you don't say it, but what you're showing is that you don't care what happens to them. Now, many of you have had conversations during the course of which you've been able to restore a brother or a sister back to the Lord and back into the fellowship of the church. Somebody who may be drifting away, somebody who may maybe fallen into a particular sin that they were really struggling, they could not get out of it on their own. And you came along because you noticed that they were struggling, because maybe you were noticed that they were absent. And you came along and you found them and you pursued them and you talked to them And whether through confronting them or encouraging them, you've gained a brother back. You've gained a sister back. What a tremendous experience it is if it's ever happened with you. When you come and you say, I know that you're struggling. I'm here to help you. Why? Because I care about you. And I'm willing to do this messy thing. And I'm willing to talk about your life and get involved in it. And I'm willing to go through church discipline with you if that's necessary because I care enough about you. And so we will deal with this, and the person is restored. And they're back walking with Christ, and they're back walking with other believers. What a beautiful thing it is. However, sometimes you go to a person like that, who maybe had been drifted, and you realize it's too late. You realize their heart has been hardened with the deceitfulness of sin. And they've been fallen away, and they love sin more now than they love Christ. And what a tragic experience it is to see a brother or a sister fall away. And you always wonder, and you think, maybe if I would have gotten to them sooner. Maybe if there was somebody else who would have gotten to them and exhorted them earlier. Now, this is why we need to exhort. We need to exhort because sin is far too dangerous for us not to take it seriously because grace is far too important not to flow into exhortation and church discipline, and because our brothers and sisters are far too precious to be left alone. Now, we should do it. How do we do it? Listen to John Calvin. He writes, If we wish to consult the well-being of such as go astray, we must consider the character and disposition of every one so that they who are meek and tractable may in a kind manner be restored to the right way, as being objects of pity. But if any be perverse, he is to be corrected with more severity. Calvin says that when we exhort people, we must discern which approach is appropriate to them right now. It might be that they need to be corrected with certain degree of severity. It might be that they need to be encouraged with a great degree of mercy. How do you know which one? We need to discern. Scripture is clear that there are different approaches to different people. You can't go in with the same approach to everyone. For example, Jude, verses 22 and 23, say, Have mercy on those who doubt, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Judas saying there's different ways to approach different people. Some who doubt, you just need to show mercy. Others, you need to violently snatch them out of the fire. And others, you need to be merciful to them, but you need to realize that they can drag you in with them into the sin that they're in. Different approaches to different people. All those groups we need to be exhorting, but we need to be exhorting them differently. Now look at Jesus. When Jesus exhorted people when he walked the earth and he talked to a variety of people, notice how his approach was different to different people. For example, Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces woes to the Pharisees and scribes. Woes are, are judgment. When God says woe to you, He's not pitying you. He's saying judgment and wrath is coming to you for what you're doing. There is no hint of encouragement in that chapter towards the Pharisees or the scribes. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on them. Yes, Jesus was judgmental. Everybody has this image of Jesus who never said a negative word. That's not true. Read the Gospels. Jesus was at times very harsh toward certain people in certain circumstances. Remember the time when, when Peter doubted him and, uh, and he thought that Jesus should not die? And Jesus said, get behind me. What? Satan. He's calling Peter Satan. Come on, that's not encouraging. Right? You start arguing with somebody and you throw Satan in there? <laughs> this is not good, right? There's no hint of encouragement to Peter. Harsh with some people in certain circumstances. And yet, the same Peter later, remember Peter had denied Christ and now Jesus risen from the dead, he comes to Peter and all he has is encouragement and comfort to him. He restores Peter, there's no judgment. Same guy he called Satan. Jesus comes and says, Do you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep. He gives them the church. Amazing. Same person, different circumstances. Same Jesus using different approaches. Remember that passage when a woman was caught in adultery. And everybody came. Of course, everybody's excited. Going to stone somebody. And Jesus looks around and he says, you, you cannot judge this person because you're just as sinful as she is. And everybody puts stones down walks away. And Jesus talks to the woman and he says, Where are your accusers? Anybody condemning you anymore? She says, no. He says, neither am I. No condemnation for her. He says, go and sin no more. Only encouragement, only comfort for her. Different circumstances, different people require different approaches in exhortation. And so when you are exhorting somebody, you need to be very careful not to fall into one approach. Some of us, naturally, we want to back up the truck, right, and unload on them. That's our natural inclination. We, we are confronters, we are challengers, we're ready to get into there and tell them how wrong they are. Friends, sometimes it is appropriate. But not all the time. Some of you, you love to comfort, you love to encourage It doesn't matter what's going on in the person's life, you're going to be on their side. Sometimes it is appropriate, but not all the time. Don't always comfort, and don't always confront. You need wisdom to know which approach is appropriate for that particular person in that particular time. We need to be wise. Now, how do we get that wisdom? Well, remember that all these gifts are gifts of the Spirit. The Spirit himself is given us these gifts, like exhortation and others, and that's an extension of his nature in his ministry. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls the Spirit another helper. And the word that he's using is the word that's very close to the word exhortation. It also has that same part that says alongside. Just as the Spirit comes alongside, We are to come alongside others. So we need to do it with the Spirit. If you go in to exhort someone, I think it's a necessary practice that we pray that the Spirit would tell us how to do it well. What is the right approach for this person at this time? Should I confront them or should I console them? I've gone into meetings with one idea Mostly to confront, as I said. That's my natural tendency. And yet, once I get to the meeting and I meet the person, I know that the Spirit does not want me to confront them. The Spirit wants me to encourage them and to console them. And I better listen because the Spirit knows better than I do what's going on in that person's life, in their heart, how fragile they are, my relationship with them. Is it able to handle a confrontation? And so we need to listen to the Spirit. Richard Sibbs, the old Puritan, says, It is hard to preserve just bounds of mercy and severity without a Spirit above our own, but which we ought to desire to be led in all things. That wisdom which dwells with prudence will guide us in these particulars, without which virtue is not virtue, truth is not truth. Don't kid yourself that you know exactly how to do that. Rely on the Spirit in case-by-case case, uh, situations where you took a particular person, you took it a particular circumstance and listened to the Spirit to do it well then. Now, so we've learned about that we should exhort, how we should exhort in wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Now let's answer the question, why don't we do it? Many of us do not exhort others. Why? Well, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, and some are personal and subjective. But there's one big reason that most of us can identify with. One major reason is that it is a risky thing to do. When you set out to exhort somebody, you're putting that relationship at risk. When you go into a friend, or somebody who generally thinks nicely of you, and you exhort them, specifically if you confront them, specifically if you get involved in their lives and you say there is sin in your life that needs to be corrected, it is likely that you're going to lose them as a friend. And so many of us don't do it. Many churches don't practice church discipline because of that, because they don't want to lose people, because they don't want to lose friends, because they want to appear uh, judgmental. So if we go to somebody, we need to know that we are putting our relationship at risk. Is it worth it? Yes. Because if you don't confront a friend, you're not actually being a good friend. You may preserve the appearance of friendship, but if you're not willing to confront a person, to exhort them on a particular issue in their life, you're telling them, I don't care what's going on, I'm not going to be involved. And so you're not a friend, really, even though they're friendly with you. Friends get involved in people's lives and risk those relationships for the sake of the other person. Because their focus isn't the friendship, their focus is the friend. That's who they care about. There's a passage in Proverbs 27 that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Enemy kisses all the time, It's so all nice but a friend is willing to wound another person for their sake. And so when you choose, when I choose not to exhort a person, what I'm really saying is, I'm going to pretend to be your friend, but I'm really becoming your enemy. Be careful that for the sake of the friendship, you don't actually turn into that person's enemy. But of course, Nobody likes rejection. Nobody, very few people like confrontation. Nobody wants to go into a conversation where you know you may lose that person, where they they may get really angry with you and have nothing to do with you anymore. But if you are a true friend, you will do that for their sakes. So we're risking a relationship. We're also risking a reputation. If you exhort others, you need to be ready to be accused of judgmentalism and and legalism and being mean and not supportive and all those things that usually come up. There are times when our brothers and sisters are so committed to their sin that they would rather stay with sin than with you. And they would rationalize that choice. And we rationalize those choices all the time. Somebody comes to exhort you. You don't want to respond. It is likely that you will accuse them of doing it improperly. And usually the word that comes up is judgmentalism. You're too judgmental. You're not a supportive friend. Well, friends are willing to do that for each other. Friends are not willing to just keep enabling you to sin. If I care enough about you, I will risk not just the relationship, but my reputation as well. And yes, sometimes it gets out into the ears of other people. And other people now think of you as you being judgmental and too critical. We need to take that risk. To be exhorting others, we need to realize there's a cost associated with it. Most of you know. You've lost friends like that. You've been falsely accused of things like that. I hope you don't regret exhorting others because you did what a friend is supposed to do. You did what God wants you to do. People who are battling with sin and being eaten up by sin need exhortation. Well, that's why we don't do it. Too much rejection, too much discomfort, too much of a lost friendship and reputation. I'm going to answer this last question and then we will take communion. This is a very important question to answer. Given all that I've said, How can we start doing it? How can we do it well? And if you are doing it already, if you are getting into people's lives already and exhorting them, and if you are open to exhortation yourself, how do you keep doing it and keep doing it well? What is our motivation? What will help us overcome rejection and loss of reputation so we would still be encouraging and confronting our brothers and sisters? There is no greater motivation than the Gospel itself. Friends, this is every sermon. Every sermon, if you pay attention, ends with this. We need the gospel because that's the only motivation that can change us. The gospel is Jesus. So you look at Jesus. Jesus, who was a good friend, a true friend, who said, I will suffer rejection. I will suffer abandonment. I will give up my life. I will bear all these false accusations. I will die as a falsely accused criminal because I care about my friends. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus said, I lay down my life for my friends. You see, Jesus knew that friendship involves sacrifice, that to be a good friend, you risk your life, and you risk your reputation. And that's okay. That's part of friendship. And so he risked it all, and he lost it all for us, his friends. Jesus knew the weight of sin because he bore it for us on the tree. He knew the power of sin. He knew that there is no death of sin unless he too would die. He knew nobody could kill sin unless the Son of God is killed as well. And so Jesus died, gave his life for us. Listen to this quote from John Owen, another Puritan. He he describes the weight of sin, the reason why Jesus had to die. Listen to this. To see Christ, the wisdom and the power of God, always beloved of the Father, to see him fear and tremble, bow and sweat, pray and die, to see him lifted up on the cross, the earth trembling beneath him as if unable to bear his weight, to see the heavens darkened over him as if shut against his cry, and himself hanging between both as if refused by each, to see that all this is because of our sins is to see clearly the holy justice and wrath of God against sin. Supremely in Christ, Do we learn this great truth that God hates sin and judges it with a dreadful and fearful judgment? Jesus, because he's our friend, bore that judgment for us. Caught between heaven and earth, a friend dying for others. Because of this sacrifice, because of the length that Jesus is willing to go to to be our friend, Grace has power. This is not just an example. Yes, it is inspirational to think of Jesus and think, I need to be like that. But there's something else happening. That through his sacrifice, the grace that comes to us and gives us forgiveness and acceptance with God is also the grace that is now spread through our gifts onto others. And so I because I am secure in my relationship with God through Christ, because I know what He did for me, I can now risk my friendship with you. I can now risk my reputation with you, because I know my reputation with God through Christ is secure. This is a powerful thing if unleashed on a church, knowing that we are so secure in the gospel of grace in Christ, that we can, without fear, Exhort one another. That grace changes you. It takes a coward and makes him into an exhorter. It takes somebody who is so concerned with pleasing others and and their reputation, so concerned with maintaining an appearance of friendships, and makes them a fearless warrior for others, taking on the ravenous wolf of sin on their behalf. Grace does that. To the degree that you understand the gospel, to the degree that you feel it, you will be a good exhorter for others. Rely on God's grace. This is what we see at the table, don't we? A friend who died for us, body sacrificed for us, blood spilled for us so we can be in a new covenant with our God. Totally accepted totally forgiven by grace and now empowered by the same grace to live for him and for others. If you come to communion, if you are a believer, you've experienced that grace, you come to communion and you get nourished. You get fed so you can go and be more empowered to serve others. Communion is not just a personal discipline. We come together. We come as God's people And we say we need help in our community to exhort each other, to love each other, to serve each other. We need your grace to be power for us in our relationships. If you're a believer, come to the table. Come to the table and feed on Christ himself, the true friend who died and rose for you. As you come, I'm going to give you a point of application. This is very simple, but I don't want to leave this on an abstract level. And perhaps I'm using my gift of exhortation. I want you to put it into practice. I want you to do it. I want you to pick one person from this church that you will exhort this week. Very simple. One person from this church whom you will exhort this week. It could be a person that's here right now. It could be a person you know well. It could be a person you don't know well at all. It could be a person that is not here right now, that maybe has been drifting away, you haven't seen them for a few weeks, you don't know what's going on with them. Give them a call. Get together with them for coffee. It could be somebody who's here for the first time, or maybe is new to the church that you need to get to know and bless them and encourage them and comfort them. They might be struggling with something you don't know. So I want you to think of a name or think of a face. I'm making it very practical. One person this week. To encourage and possibly confront if they're dealing with sin. Did you know that a week like that could totally transform a community like ours? Can you imagine what will happen if we all follow through with that? And if everyone, let's be realistic, 80% of us follow through on that and talk to somebody during the week that we will encourage or help return to Christ. Do it. Come to the table, pray that God would give you that person, give you that face, and come and get power to do it well. Let's pray together, and then we will sing a song and take the Lord's table together.